I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 12. We're going to start there and camp there and end there this morning. Just verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't you love it when people ask you for things? Do you love when you receive phone calls during supper asking if you want new windows in your house or if you'd support the local police or the March of Dimes or the Jimmy Fund or the Democratic or Republican campaigns or whatever it is. People are asking us all the time for things. Charities are always looking for donations for help, people with health problems, disease, world hunger, people who are misfortuned, who need our help, are always looking for our help. The Jimmy Fund just finished its telethon again this year, um, just this past week, and you heard people who are suffering with cancer give testimony about how the Jimmy Fund has helped them and and it's funding research to to help those. Service organizations, which should be covered by our tax dollars, are now asking for our money now. We've got the fire departments with the fill the boot campaigns at the intersections certain times of year, and uh, the police departments are always looking for more money to help in, you know, buy new equipment or uh, do new things. And then if you have kids, you've got kids in school, and the schools are always looking for your money. <clears throat> we have had our kids here at Fellowship, and Fellowship is like every other school, from time to time, there's fundraising events that go on to raise money for this, that, or the other thing. Uh, Nathan's over at the Seoul School, and they're completely remodeling that school in the next couple of years, so I know they're going to be knocking at our doors even more as they put new equipment in in the schools there. And then there's activities. If you have kids, the kids' activities take up a lot of time and resources. They've got sporting events or birthday parties to go to or friends' houses that they want to They want to see sleepovers, games, concerts, trips, and all of those things take up our time. And then there's our employment and the commitments that are related to our job and uh, things that we have to do, whether it be travel for our work or meetings that we have to go to, phone calls we have to make. Um, And then on top of all that, we want to live and enjoy our own things and take a vacation every once in a while or enjoy a hobby that, uh, that we have, or go camping, or you know, collect things, or, or do some travel, or, or whatever it might be, and it's like, ah, just stop, stop asking. I, you know, I don't have all this money that you want. And then we come to church, and what do we hear? Commit your life to God. Give your life completely over to Him, and give all of your, your, your time and resources and everything you have to God. And you say, how can I do that? What's left after everybody else has asked everything of me? And I've, I, I feel like I'm just this little rubber band stretched thin. And if anybody stretches me anymore, it's going to snap. I don't have anything left in the bucket to give. 
and I don't know if you feel that way. I have felt that way. I don't anymore. Um, but part of it, I think, is because of just the concept I want to share with you this morning. And it's, it's a way of thinking. It's not going to be anything new or earth-shattering, I don't think, what I share with you this morning, but maybe it will help. And uh, there was a graphic up on the screen there that I wanted you to take a look at because this represents to me in one way how we think about our Christian life. And when we say things like, you know, give God first place or commit your life to the Lord, only one life to live, let me offer it now to you, Lord, we tend to think in terms of um, something like this, where we're putting God at the top and then we have this list of priorities beneath him. And of course, as a Christian, we want to put God first. That's what we say. God gave his life for me and so I want to give my life back to him. But as we look at the way that our lives are, are lived out, it doesn't really seem that way. Um, I mean, as far as time is concerned, if you're a Sunday morning person and that's, and that's what you give to the Lord, then how much time is there left in the week? And if God's at top, then wouldn't, that, wouldn't it kind of tend to seem that you would spend more time with him than anything else, if that's the way we're thinking about it? But it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> and then we make this list of priorities beneath God. So God will say, well, he'll be first in my life, and second, I'd say my family. You know, that's, that's the second most important thing in life. And so I'm going to make sure that my family's taken care of and, and do my duties to my family. And then beyond that is the church. And so God comes first, family comes second, church fits third in there somewhere. And then my job or my duties, civic duties, I put it, you know, things that are, I'm required to do as a citizen of the United States or of the town that I live in, whatever. And then my personal stuff fits at the bottom in my mind. This is how I prioritize things. So would, you pri would you prioritize it differently? Maybe you would. Maybe you'd switch family and church. I don't know. Or maybe you'd switch church and employment because your job is a little more important than, than serving at church or whatever it is. But we, we tend to prioritize these things in this way. And we end up trying to fit God into things. And, and what I want to do is just erase that whole idea of prioritizing God in your life and giving him first place in this sense, and look at it in a different way. And if you want to throw that second slide up there, and think of God in terms of an all-encompassing God, where he is a part of everything that you do. There you go. <clears throat> and the best way I could think of it was more like the, the spokes on a wheel. And so our life as a circle has all these components to it, but God is connected to every one of them. So when we are prioritizing family, it's not so much that family is, is becoming above God or family is apart from God, where we have time for God and time for family, but we are exercising our, our duties as a mother or a father or as a son or a daughter or a brother, sister, whatever, wherever we are in our family life, and we're doing it out of the fear and obedience to, to the Lord in his word. And God is, a, is not only a major part, but the controlling factor in our family. So that church is not just something we do. We realize that this body right here in Methuen is the local expression of Jesus Christ in the world. 
we are a part of that body. And as we're connected to the Lord, we realize that we need to function in this church. We need to serve in this church. We need to be a part of each other's lives as the body of Christ because we belong to him, not because churches fit somewhere in a priority list. Our job is not just another segment of our life, but it's a part of our, our Christian life. And God has us planted there at that place of employment for a reason. And every day that we go in and everything that we do in that job is related to who we are in the Lord. It's related to our Christian life. And we have opportunities there just like we have opportunities here to share the gospel, to live a, a, an exemplary life, to allow the Spirit of God to live through us, whether it's being honest when other people aren't, whether it's um, sharing a good word of encouragement when people around you are so discouraging, whether it's, you know, it's allowing God to show himself to people around you. Our hobbies, the same thing. I mean, that's probably where we get the most personal, I guess, because that's what we like to do. It's what defines our life. It's what you like to do when you're alone or when, you're, you know, when you have spare time. But even there, we belong to God. We are Christians first. We are holy people first. And no matter what we're doing, whether we're you know, dangling a line in a stream and trying to catch that fish, or whether we're out riding a bike or jogging, or whether we're reading a good book or whatever it is, all of that is a spoke on a wheel whose hub and whose center is God himself. And when you think about life that way, the commitment levels that you're asked to participate in begin to change. And if you are committed first to the Lord, then you're going to find a way to fit those commitments into your life in a way that God is going to be pleased and glorified. You can just leave that up there um, for the rest of the, the time this morning. I want you to look again at, at first Corinthians. I keep saying first Corinthians. I'm sorry about that. I have first Corinthians on the brain today. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I'd like to take just some time to go through and look at the words that are in here and encourage us to think of the centrality of God, the fact that God is the center of our life, not a portion, not a part, not a segment, but the center of it that permeates into everything that we do, and look at the words um, that Paul uses to teach us this concept. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I'd like you to consider the centrality of God in your life first in terms of urgency. <clears throat> and Paul uses the word here, urge. I urge you. And um, it could be translated beg. It could be translated beseech, which it is in the um, King James. It could mean exhort. But it's a, it's a word with some strength behind it. And it has the idea of the, the, main, um, the, the main end of something. The reason that I'm telling you this, Paul says, the reason that I'm urging you to think about it this way is because it's extremely important. If you're in college, the, the, the whole point of your being there is that final exam and graduation. There's an, there's an end to it. Um, or if you're doing a doctoral program, the final 
point of that is your dissertation. It's the, it's the finished product that you're, that you're aiming for. If you're on a team, it's winning that trophy. It's, you can you know, think of any illustration you want. But Paul says, I am urging you because this is, this is it. We've had 11 chapters in Romans, and you guys are well taught in the book of Romans, and it's one of the, the deepest theological books in the New Testament. It's a great book to study. And he, and he says, up to this point, I urge you, therefore, to think this way. In light of everything that I've just told you in your Christian life, and we'll think about that in just a minute, this is it. This is why I'm teaching you this. This is why I told you all of the, these theological truths is so that you could come to this point in your life, and I'm urging you to listen to me now. And this, this point in the book, there's a break, and the rest of the book, he gets into the practicality of Christian living, and it starts right here. <clears throat> So, he's, so, like Paul, I'm asking us, I'm asking you and for me, to see the centrality of God as an urgent matter. It's not just another thing to think about. This is, this is primary. This is, um, this is important. Secondly, I'd like you to see the centrality of God in terms of conclusion, and that comes from the word, therefore. I urge you, therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore in any piece of literature, you know that there's something before it, right? That's what the word therefore does. If I just started this sermon this morning and said, therefore, you'd all look at me and say, what? Because I hadn't said anything yet. And so Paul, in this verse, he's urging them to listen carefully to what he's about to say because of what he just said. And if you think through uh, for a moment with me through the book of Romans, we've got the entire Christian theology, and I'm sorry my voice is cracking, that's just the way it is this morning, in, encapsulated in the first uh, 11 chapters of Romans. Uh, you've heard of the Romans Road, which is a method of sharing the gospel with people because it's all there. It's all there in the book of Romans. You can take certain key verses out of the sections of Romans and share the entire gospel with, with people. Um, Paul shared in the first part of the book of Romans how we are helplessly and hopelessly lost. Talking about the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, and the inability of man to save himself. And he goes through arguments in the first three chapters that everybody in the world will give. But what about people who don't know the gospel and have never heard? Are they condemned? Yes. Why? Because they have the creation around them and they have the witness of God within them, according to chapter 1. And they can see, just as clearly as you and I can see, that there is a God and that they need him. They can see his power and his Godhead clearly in the things that he's made. And he's put a witness within them. Every person has this, <clears throat> that they are a created being and that they... Um, they need to look up. They are without excuse, according to chapter 1, verse 20. What about people who are good? There are a lot of good people in the world. Would you agree? Can you name some? I mean, other than the people around here? Theologically speaking, that's true. But in a, in a human manner of speaking, are there good people around you? Yeah, there are some. 
My next door neighbor, he's a wealthy man and he has a garage full of tools and every time I go over there to borrow something, he says, sure, love to share that with you. It's nice. And some of it's like big heavy equipment. So I get to dig things in my yard with his stuff. So is he good? Well, in human terms, sure, he's a good neighbor. We have other neighbors that we share things with. We share birthdays sometimes with them or, or their kids' birthdays. Or um, there, are, there are people who give money to charities. You know, the, the Jimmy Fund, last I heard, had collected over $2.1 million or something. It might be higher than that. I don't know how high it got. But they had, they had overreached their goal. Um, in the telethon, and so all these people are, are giving money, right? Aren't they good? Everybody likes to think of themselves as good, and we are good in our own eyes, but what, is, what does Paul say about that? Chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. People still have a problem, don't they? Even good people sin, and that's the problem. No matter how good you think you are, ultimately there's going to be judgment that, that, that's passed on you. Because if you're good, you're going to look at other people and you're going to condemn them for not being as good as you, but when you condemn them, you're really condemning yourself. That's what Paul says. Your goodness really doesn't carry any weight with God because your goodness can't pay for sin. What about religious people, people who talk about God, people who say that they know God or want to serve God? In this case, it was the Jews. In our case, we could say you could name any religion you want around here. What about the Catholics? What about the Mormons? Good people, religious people? Go to church kind of people, kind of people that have kids that you want your kids to play with. Are they condemned? Yes, they are. Why? Because they sin too. Everybody sins. And he comes to the conclusion in chapter 3 that the whole world is condemned before God because of its sin. And Paul teaches us that, and we understand that, we know that. We're helplessly and hopelessly lost but we're not without an answer. In chapter 3, I love the word but, verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the answer. For the whole world, whether you've heard the gospel or not, if you haven't, you need to hear it. Whether you're religious or not, your religion is not going to save you. Whether you're good in your own eyes or not, your goodness is not going to save you. Jesus Christ is the only one that can pay for the sin that you've committed in your life. You can't do it on your own. And Paul explains this. This is theology 101. We all know it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, how? As a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And he emphasizes that over and over and over again from this point forward. In Christ Jesus, you will find redemption. In Christ Jesus, you will find justification. By believing in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. 
And that point is driven home and driven home and driven home through the rest of the book of Romans. In chapter 4, he talks about the importance of belief. Faith is the key that enters us into this relationship with God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so through our faith in Jesus Christ, we gain God's righteousness. That's the substitutionary death of Christ in our behalf, and we, we enter into that relationship through faith. <clears throat> and then in Christ, there is a litany of things that God has given to us. In chapter 5, we have peace with God. We have hope of everlasting life. We have newness of life in chapter 6. We have a, a realization that the power of sin is no longer active in our life. We have a new, uh, a new life in God, in Christ, and Christ now is the driving force of our life, not the sin where it once was. And though we still sin, it no longer has that power over us, and it's a defeated foe. It was nailed to the cross. We find in chapter 8 that there's no condemnation in Christ, and that the Spirit of God has come to dwell in us. And we go through the rest of, rest of these chapters. I'm just kind of jumping over. <clears throat> the end of chapter 8, we have those great verses in 38 and 39. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Who, who will separate us from the love of Christ? No one can. Nothing can. We have total confidence and security in Christ. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, things present nor things to come, no powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we have all this truth, and we could spend a lot more time on it. We have all this truth that God has given to us, and now there's an appropriate response to that truth. There are appropriate responses to lots of things in life, right? If somebody does something nice to you, what do you, what do, you do? You thank them. That's appropriate. An athlete who trains for an event, he does well in the event and he wins the race. What's the appropriate response? You clap. In the Olympics, you would sing the national anthem for that particular country, and you give him a gold medal. It's what he's worked so hard for. It's an appropriate response. And so Paul has been sharing and sharing and sharing and sharing and sharing about all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus and how, we, how God provided salvation for us through Christ, where we were helplessly lost, but now we are gloriously saved. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, to do this. It's an appropriate response. Think of the centrality of God as in terms of conclusion, in a response to what God has already done for you. Thirdly, think of the centrality of God in terms of, this is a normal thing, normalcy. I know that there are people who believe that pastors, maybe elders and teachers, are really the only ones that should be totally committed to God. It's not true. You know, God has called me, and I could share the details of how that happened in my life. I've worked in my life just like you have, at a normal job, 
getting up at six in the morning and driving into the job and working there until five or six at night and going home. Before I worked here, I worked as a piano technician for 50 or 60 hours a week at, at Sanderson Piano Services. And when I was working there, I still considered my life like this. God was the center of my life, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm up here preaching as a pastor of this church, or whether I'm out working or retired or whatever, it doesn't matter what our condition in life is. There's no special calling to put God first. It's a general calling to put God first. It's a normal thing for a Christian to, to, to look at life this way and say, hey, God is in control of my entire life. I belong to him. And, and why do I say that? Who was, who was Paul talking to here? I urge... What's the next word? Or I beseech you. Who is he talking to? This was not a letter to pastors. There is another letter to pastors in the New Testament. That would be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. This was written to a church just like ours, where people had come to know Christ, they had gotten saved, how many of you here are saved this morning? Raise your hand high. I know Christ. That's almost all of you, if not all of you. So who's Paul talking to? Us. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. Paul here is addressing not the elite or some super Christian who has it all together. He's addressing every person who belonged to the Church of Rome. We know some of their names as you get into chapter 16 in the book of Romans. He, he's, he greets some of them, and so we, we know some of their names. We don't know all these people. They were normal people. They were people who were living at the time, who made livings at the time. They were raising families. Some of them were widows. Some of them were young. Some of them were old, just like our church. There's, there were people. And he says, I urge you, you, therefore, brethren, Think of the centrality of God in your life as a normal thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have addressed us that way. Fourthly, think of the centrality of God in terms of geography as to where you are on this earth. I think many of us think of giving our lives to God as a mental exercise. It's just something that we think. And so if somebody actually walked up to us and said, have you given your life to Christ? You would say, yes, I have, because I thought about it. But what does Paul actually say here? And many times you hear, and, and nothing wrong with this, you hear people say, you need to give your heart to the Lord. True. But where does our heart reside? Right here. I can't go anywhere without this. It would be kind of cool if I could. I would like to just instantly travel. I love Star Trek. If we could ever beam places, I would be happy. <clears throat> we just had to drop our girls off down in South Carolina for, for college, and it's a thousand miles door to door. It's a long ride. And by the end of that thousand miles, I am ready to, to sleep or whatever. But I am where I am because I'm in my body. And interestingly, in this passage that Paul gives such an urgency to, he doesn't talk about the heart, he talks about the body. 
which means wherever you are in your body, geographically, wherever you go, you're here right now, but you're going to go home in a few minutes. And you're going to sit down at a table and eat, or you're going to go shopping, or you're going to go to somebody's house, or you're going to sit down and watch a game, or you're going to take a nap, or you're going to do something with your Sunday afternoon. Where are you? geographically you're in your body and so paul says i urge you therefore brethren to present your bodies if you present your body you you have presented your life you can't separate your life from your body because that you are where you are and wherever you go whether it's personal time church family job or everything else or whatever wherever you are you're in your body and and he says to present your body as a living sacrifice because that's, that's where we live, that's where we are. And I think that there are people who think of their Christian life in terms of a mental exercise. I know I'm saved, I know I have a ticket to heaven, I'm thankful for that. I'll come here on a Sunday morning and get what I can get from the sermon and then off I go. And not really think of themselves in terms of I belong to God, my body belongs to him. All this knowledge of God that's good. That's good enough for me. I like knowing. And I'm happy to know it. Well, it isn't good enough for God. God saved you for a reason, and that reason includes bringing glory to him wherever you are. He commands us to present our bodies. So this means making decisions, going places, doing things that will please him wherever we are. Wherever we are in time and space, whether we're on the couch or walking or driving or whatever we're doing, we're meant to glorify God. And so think of the centrality of God in terms of geography more than just mentality. It's an every moment experience. That's why those songs are so powerful. When, when you sing, uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, and talks about every moment of every day, that's, that's real. That's, that's this theology in song. Only one life to offer. May I give it, dear Lord, to you to live daily. So we're thinking of the centrality of God in terms of urgency, I urge you. Think of it in terms of conclusion. It's an appropriate response according to all of our, our Christian theology and what we know about God. Think of it in terms of normalcy. He didn't write this to the super Christian. He wrote it to the average person who knows Christ. That's you and me, those, those of us in the church. Think of it in terms of geography. It's your body that he's after. Of course, your heart resides in your body, but this is, it's our life. It's what we do. It's where we go. Fifthly, think of the centrality of God, and this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of sacrifice. And this is where we have probably the most difficulty um, in thinking about giving our lives to, to the Lord because none of us, if you're honest, I think, like to think about our lives in terms of sacrifice. Most of us like to think of our lives in terms of gain. It's true. I do it too. 
I would much rather have 10,000 in the bank than one. Anybody would. Or I'd much rather have 100,000 than 10. I'd much rather have a house with six rooms in it than three. And we tend in our lives to work and work and work to get to that next whatever it is. And we could do it in terms of money. We could do it in terms of job. We could do it in terms of clothes. We could do it in terms of, of health. We could do it in terms of anything that we want. We're, we're seeking to improve, which is fine. But the idea of sacrifice flies in the face of that. The, the, the idea of sacrifice comes from the Old Testament, and it was right at the very beginning. At the very beginning of time, you all know the account of Adam and Eve in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. God had given them one rule, and they broke it. And as soon as they broke it, they felt the shame of that, and they covered themselves with fig leaves. And God went searching for them in the garden and found them. He didn't really have to search. He knew where they were. But he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, here, in the bushes. And, and God says, why are you hiding? And he says, I'm hiding because I'm naked. He says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? That, and he comes right to the point. It's like your parent, you know. Have you? And you know you're guilty. And Adam says, yes, I did. And what did God say was going to happen as soon as he, he broke that law? In the day that you eat of this, the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. Did Adam die that day? Well, again, we could get theological and say, yeah, he died spiritually. There was a separation now between him and God that didn't exist before. But he didn't physically die, did he? He went on to live. And in fact, he enjoyed married life for another 900 years. Had children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and lived out his life. How did that happen? What was the first thing God did for him? An animal was sacrificed, and the skin of that animal was taken, and it covered Adam. And right from the very beginning, we learn the idea that sin must be covered in order for a person to have a relationship with God because God is holy and cannot tolerate sin and won't tolerate sin. But God made the sacrifice for Adam. And that animal had to die. And that, that literally was the first death in the Bible, as far as I know, was that animal that was sacrificed in behalf of Adam and Eve, and, and the skins were taken and covered them. And, and many deaths have followed since. But the idea of sacrifice, what did that animal have to say about it? Nothing. That animal was used for a specific purpose. And you think about the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were bulls, they were goats, they were turtle doves, they were, they were animals that were bred specifically for that purpose. And you might think, well, they were once useful. I suppose that bull was once useful in the field, right? It had a purpose, it had a job, and, and there it was. But the day came when he was required to give his life. And when he laid there on the altar, he had no recourse with the priest to say anything to the priest, to say, I'm really not ready for this. 
I've got a great life in the field. You want to pick him instead of me. No, the sacrifice had no rights, no ambitions, no goals. His life was now fully dedicated to that one purpose. And you think, well, that's pretty morbid. Is that what God's asking me to do? Yes, it is. But look at the word that goes with it. God requires here, he urges us to present our bodies not as just a sacrifice, but what kind? A living sacrifice. Very interesting concept. It's a contradiction of terms. How can a sacrifice live? A sacrifice is supposed to die. Well, we begin to think about that when Jesus said, you know, he who will gain his life must lose it. He must take up his cross and follow me. And as we live this way, if, if we allow God, and, this, and really the, the verb in here is to present. The, it means to yield. This is what God is asking us to do, to yield our lives to him. If we don't, we will live for ourselves. We will live for our own goals and our own ambitions, and we will gain things in this world which will mean not much in the end. But if we do, if we present our bodies and yield our bodies to him, then who are we living for? For him. Our decisions will change. Our attitudes and our goals will change. They have to. But even though we are alive, the same principles apply, don't they? We are living, but we are still a sacrifice. We are offering ourselves to God to be used how he wants, not how we want. We say that we want to please God. Think of the centrality of God in terms of this is what pleases him. This is what pleases God. When we think this way and when we offer ourselves this way to the Lord, when we yield up our lives to God consciously, what's the next phrase there? Acceptable to God. This is how to please him. It's where it begins. And then lastly, think of the centrality of God in terms of reasonability. I know there are some who would say, this is totally unreasonable. I wouldn't do that. I would not give my life to God that way. But what does he say? This is your reasonable or spiritual service of worship. And why is it reasonable? Well, go back and read the first half of the book of Romans. And you really can't come up with any other conclusion. If you took advantage of, by faith, what Christ has done for you, and you will reap those rewards for eternity, why is it not reasonable to give a few years of that eternity to the Lord now? It really is. And it comes down to what we really believe. You know, and I'm right with you. Maybe you don't have these times, but I do, where I, I start wondering, is this really all true? Maybe I missed the boat, and I'm living in a way that I'm sacrificing all of the privileges and fun that I could have if I didn't know Christ, and I'm missing things, I'm missing out on things. 
So I'll just kind of live on the edge here. I'll give a little of my time to God because I really I want to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that my eternity is true. But, you know, if it turns out not to be, I'll have had a little fun here too. You never think that way? The centrality of God in our lives is an urgent matter. It's a reasonable matter. It's what pleases God. It's, a, it's an appropriate response to what God has already done for us. And so how does this all apply? Well, it's going to apply differently, I think, to, to every person in here. Because we, all are, we, we have been planted where God has put us. Your hobbies are not mine. Your job is not mine. Your family is not mine. Your circle of influence and the people that you know are not mine. God's placed me in a certain position in life. And we intersect here. But your life isn't mine. And so as I yield my life to God, it's going to look different than how you yield your life to God. But the principles are the same. Everywhere I go, no matter what I do, God is with me and his desire is to glorify himself in me. So every decision I make and every place I go, what about here at the church? You might say, yeah, it's easy for you. You're the pastor. You need to be here all the time. No, even before I became the pastor, this is the way my wife and I thought and still think. And we gave ourselves to the church before we ever dedicated our lives this way to be the pastor. We, we were here. Pretty much every time the doors were open, we were here. We were participating. We were teaching where we could teach. We were helping where we could help. And if you fired me as the pastor of this church and I stayed here, I would still do the same thing because it's right. That's the way that God expects me to live. You are, you are my family. I am a part of you because I'm a part of the body of Christ and so are you. And so I want to encourage you and serve you with my life. That's, that's how it applies. Supporting the church, we always have. We've supported the church financially from day one. And we have, we've tried to give according to the principles of the New Testament. It's not a percentage. It's a, it's a, a gift from what God has given to us. How is your life going to be committed to the Lord? Now, that's between you and God. I can't dictate that. I can't decide that. But think about the centrality of God. Allow that way of thinking to permeate your thinking about the Christian life. Instead of thinking the pyramid way where God's on the top, think the, think the spoke way where God is central to everything. And even today, wherever you go, whatever you're doing, remember that you carry God with you. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's an awesome verse. Learn it, know it, get to know it, and apply it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I ask that you would bless the time that we have uh, remaining to us in this day, that we would use it for your glory. And we pray again for uh, the folks who are driving down from New Hampshire uh, probably this hour and just ask that you keep everybody safe as they're on the road. And 
I pray that they would have had a, a wonderful time uh, with Bill Michaud and the Word this morning. Pray that you would drive the truths that we've learned from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, home to us and help us to live for you in a, in a rededicated way. And Lord, help us to think of these, uh, these words often, even daily as we wake, and help us to just uh, respond in a way that's appropriate to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to number 357, Jesus Loves Even Me. We'll do a first verse, let's stand as we use this as our closing song. <laughs> 